Thank you for the introduction. I appreciate it. I'm uh, happy to be here to speak to you guys today. I am uh, coming from the home of the big three, from Detroit. So I'm talking about things that are not the big three. When we talk about skin cancers, we always talk about melanomas and squamous cells and basal cells. And so I'm talking about a little bit more unusual tumors. Now, I know that a lot of you guys don't read, I mean, nobody here probably reads slides and probably aren't that familiar with pathology. And there's a fair amount of pathology in this talk, but the reason for that is because it helps you understand what these tumors are all about. And because I, I imagine there's a moment of stress when you get a path report, you look at it and you say, I have no idea what this is or what this is gonna do. So I wanna talk about the biology of these tumors a little bit, give you a feeling for what they look like and what we mean, what the words, the vocabulary that we use with pathology means. Uh, and it's more to get an understanding as to what the next step is and what do you have to do and how worried you have to be uh, about the patient that's in front of you. Now let me try to get myself organized here. This is my, I suppose this advances my slides. Yes, good. Okay, so just a little outline as to what I'm gonna be talking about. I'm going through, I'm starting, you know, just like we always start, I'm starting with the epidermal layer and then the dermal layer, and then I'm talking about a little bit more unusual cancers of the appendages, in particular the vascular uh, lesions of the skin and some metastatic tumors too because they're distinctive. The ones that are distinctive, you know, some of the metastasis can be a nodule, but sometimes they're distinctive and tell you a little bit about what to expect. So the first tumor I'm talking about is something called a microcystic agnostic carcinoma. These are, there's arguments as to what these are. Some people believe that they're actually sweat duct tumors. Some people believe that they're of eccrine origin. And the reason that there's arguments is because, and I'll show you pictures, there's, there's populations of both kinds of cells within the tumor itself. These are very innocuous looking lesions. They're usually on the face, often in the nasolabial folds or on the maxilla. And they don't metastasize, which you think, okay, well, that's a good thing. But they are very locally aggressive, and these are very, very nasty tumors. And we've had a few of these in our office, uh, and they have very, very high recurrence rates almost no matter what you do. Clinically, they're not distinct. I've got a picture coming up. Uh, under the microscope, and I'll show you what I'm talking about, you have a very poorly circumscribed tumor in the dermis. It goes all the way down to the subcutaneous fat. Desmoplasia, we talk about desmoplastic stroma. You've heard that term, desmoplastic melanoma, means it makes its own scar. So you'll see a lot of scar tissue sort of surrounding and infiltrating these tumors. You see both tissue that looks like basal cell, as well as tissue that looks like abortive hair follicles, and some areas that look like glands also. There's not a lot of mitosis. It's not a really aggressive malignancy in terms of malignancy. It's its behavior that's aggressive. So this is a MAC. Doesn't look like much. It looks like a sclerotic basal cell. This is normal skin. I have this for orientation because I know you guys don't see it all that often. Remember the epidermal layer up here that's really darker colored, and then you have the dermis, the subcutaneous fat, there's a hair follicle right here. Well, look how different this stroma, this stuff looks. This is not pinky like here. It's much deeper, a lot more cells in it, and you have these structures here which look like the tubes of eccrine ducts. And in other areas, in the same tumor, you have areas that look like hair. These look like cysts, and that's what they are. They're little cysts embedded into the, the tumor. Can you all hear me okay? All right. And then when you have, the, this is all embedded in this really cellular, really darkly colored stroma. That's called desmoplastic stroma. Just a higher power showing the same thing. Areas that look like hair. Areas that look like eccrine duct. If you've ever seen a syringoma, it looks like a nasty syringoma or a syringoma gone bad. Okay, so why do you treat those? Well, surgical excision is the best option, but this is one where you gotta get somebody involved. A Mohs has been used, but these are 
so poorly differentiated, and it's tough sometimes to tell when you're mosing this tissue whether you've still got tumor or whether you've got normal skin around it. So without, even with what you think are clear margins, the, re the recurrence rate is very high. And we had a, a, kind of a famous story in our practice where we had a microcystic nexo that we chased basically on someone's face for about five or six years until eventually it evaded bone and then eventually evaded the cranium and it killed him. So it's, um, these are nasty things. So you see a microcystic nexal, don't blow it off, take it seriously. You might even want to get a head and neck surgeon involved early on uh, because these are very aggressive sort of things. They don't look bad, so it's kind of a scary tumor. Sebaceous carcinomas. Okay, now sebaceous carcinomas, there's different kinds. There's the ocular type and the extraocular type. More often, we're going to see the ones that come extraocular because the ones around the eyes, although we do see them, are not as common for us. They usually come to ophthalmologists. If you want to look at the, um, the structure comes from, again, normal skin, a nice hair, and then we have the sebaceous gland here, and that's where these come from, sebaceous glands. If you look at a sebaceous gland at high power, it doesn't project as well here. There's the vacuolated sort of cells that have a lot of glycogen in them, and then there's the blue cells around the base of it. The thing about this tumor is there's more blue cells and less sebaceous cells. And so you'll see as I show a picture of it. Um, these are both aggressive tumors locally. On a whole, the extractive type, the type that we see more often, behaves pretty much like a basal cell. They used to say it was more common in Asians, but I think in the literature that's sort of not borne out. So what you see is there's a continuum. We see sebaceous hyperplasia. You guys know what that looks like, the, you know, the whitish donut-shaped genital tumor all the time. If you have less sebaceous differentiation and more undifferentiated cells, it goes in a continuum from hyperplasia to something called adenoma, epithelioma, and then eventually it's truly a cancer, a carcinoma. There's irregular lobules of those more blue basaloid. That's a blue mean, basaloid means blue cells. And there's some sebaceous differentiation, or you'd never know that it was sebaceous at all. The cells are very pleomorphic, which means there are multiple different shapes and sizes, okay, with atypical nuclei, of course, and mitoses. Often they outgrow their own blood supply. They grow so rapidly that there's a little bit of tissue necrosis or death of the tissue in the middle. And the, uh, the ocular type often looks like Paget's disease. It has little cells that are kind of infiltrating up into the epidermal layer. This is a sebaceous carcinoma. He still has the shape of the sebaceous lobule. If you look at the central necrosis that you see, this is obviously on a scalp. This is an eyelid tumor that our Mohs surgeon took off, which was uh, pretty disfiguring. Actually, the person had to have an enucleation. And this is what it is. Normal skin again, okay, epidermal layer, dermal, subcutaneous. Here's the epidermal layer. The dermis has a cellular reaction. This is inflammatory cells because there's cancer down below the skin's you know, trying to react to. And then you have this nest, this actually fairly well circumscribed, all these blue basaloid cells. But if you look closely, I'm shaking a little bit because of all the coffee here. If you look closely, you see the sebaceous differentiation, right? And, and you can see that there's a little central necrosis. That's what this is. This is tissue that's outgrown its blood supply, so it's dying off right there. So how do you treat a sebaceous carcinoma? Take them pretty seriously. There is a chance for these to metastasize. You can do MOs on them, but often with sebaceous carcinoma, we send for wide excisions. I send for Mohs because I've had good luck with these. The extraocular type, I, we've had good luck with, and we've, I've never had a recurrence after Mohs. I've seen a few of these. I just had one last week, and our Mohs surgeon's very comfortable with them, but you want to interview your Mohs surgeon make sure they're comfortable. Remember, Mohs surgery, you got to look under the microscope and tell the difference between tumor and normal stuff on a frozen section. Not everything frozen sections as well as at H&Es, okay? So you want to talk to your Mohs surgeon and make sure they're comfortable doing this stuff before you send a case. Okay, the Muratori syndrome. This is a, one of the pearls from the lecture. Here's something to remember. If you see any sebaceous neoplasm that's more poorly differentiated than sebaceous um, hyperplasia, 
you should think about this. So even sebaceous adenomas, you should think about this. Sebaceous cancers, sebaceous tumors beyond sebaceous hyperplasia are not common. And they're not common enough that when you see one, you should think about this condition. The muratory syndrome is an autosomal dominant trait, okay, that's um, association between sebaceous neoplasms beyond hyperplasia, keratoacanthomas, and colon cancer. Okay, the colon cancers in this tumor are typically not super aggressive colon cancers, but they're still cancers, and if they're left alone, they still metastasize. Okay. Um, Sixty percent of patients with sebaceous neoplasms have muratory syndrome. So it's enough that a solitary lesion, anything beyond sebaceous hyperplasia, should trigger a workup, especially if it's on the head, outside of the head and neck, especially if somebody's young, less than 50 years old. Okay, uh, just so another thing about uh, muratory syndrome. Uh, we have had a few cases of that. It's underdiagnosed, and it's something that really should be concerning. So anytime you get a slip that says sebaceous adenoma, sebaceous carcinoma, sebaceous epithelioma, that's enough to trigger it, okay? They, it's a colonoscopy. They should be having colonoscopies anyway. So to have patients get the colonoscopy right back to the family doctor, make sure it's getting done. Lyomyosarcomas. Lyomyosarcomas are derived of the smooth muscle. So I showed the picture before with the sebaceous gland. Here's a hair follicle. Okay, and the, next to the hair follicle is a piece of smooth muscle, the erector pili. The erector pili is what gives you goosebumps. Okay, your hairs stand on end. That's the erector pili muscle causing the hairs to stand on end. But there are cancers of the erector pili muscles. We have benign tumors, lyomyomas. They're not that uncommon. Lyomyosarcomas are a little bit more rare. They're only 5% of sarcomas. They're most common in people in the fifth and sixth decades. They're usually on extensive surfaces like the arms and the legs. And there's two types depending on the origin. There's the cutaneous type, which we would see, which are from the erector pilar or the dartus on the scrotum. And the subcutaneous type, which comes from vascular smooth muscle, which usually we don't see because that shows up as a uh, subcutaneous mass or even a really deeper mass. And they, they are much worse actors because of where they come from. So you can see a solitary red to pink nodule. They're sometimes painful. Lyomyomas, lyomyosarcomas are in the short list of things that act tumors that hurt. There aren't that many tumors that hurt, and this is one of them. Okay. Um, rarely made clinically, because you don't think about it. It's a rare thing. Um, size, and they locally recur quite often. The depth of the tumor, when you find it, is the most important prognostic thing, as well as the mitotic rate. So ones that are really high up in the dermis have a good prognosis. Ones that are deeper metastasize more frequently. And when you do have mets, they go to the lung. So what do you see under the microscope? You have, there's, within the same tumor, this is kind of an interesting thing, you can have really bland areas and you can have really dense and really bad acting areas. So you have tumor hot spots, they call them. You see the cigar-shaped smooth muscle cells with irregular plump nuclei, some mitosis. There's usually irregular extension into the dermis, which means they're not well circumscribed. Uh, and you can stain them with a Desmond stain because sometimes it's hard to tell what you're looking at. This is one I saw in my office and it doesn't look like much at all. It's pretty scary, actually. And this is the guy's tumor here. So you see normal epidermis again, well, and normal dermis, the skin. And here you have the epidermal layer that's a little ulcerated on the top. And the entire dermis is just replaced by all this stuff. And you see how red it is? Uh, muscle cells always stain red. They look redder under the microscope. So you can kind of tell a lyomyoma or a lyomyosarcoma because of how red it is. And it's just so dense. And you go on higher power, you can see there's these sheets and cords of these cigar-shaped cells, and there's way, way too many mitoses. All these things that are really dark are chromatin patterns of mitoses. So that's a hot spot in the tumor. Again, pleomorphic, lots of different size cells, and it's the Desmond stain showing that they all stain for muscle. 
So how do you treat these? You widely excise them, um, especially if they go deep and they go into the subcutaneous tissue. This is not one that you play with at all. This you send to a soft tissue surgeon. Uh, there are people that specialize in our area, orthopedic surgeons who do soft tissue cancers. Uh, it's a good one for them because these can go and penetrate into bone and be really nasty if they're deep. DFSP, more common. You guys have probably all seen a DFSP, dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans, DFSP, a slowly growing spindle cell tumor, and it's the cancerous analogy to a dermatofibroma. Okay, so a dermatofibroma, you think it's dermatofibroma, but it's just too big and just keeps on growing, or you're watching it for a year or so and it's doubled in size, you gotta think of these. They almost look like little keloidal nodules, indurated plaques sometimes, sometimes they just look like scar. They're mostly on the trunk and the proximal extremities, and they're in young people. Okay, they're rare on the head and neck. They don't metastasize, but they're also very difficult to get rid of. Under the microscope, you see the tumor that's got these monomorphous plump spindle cells. The storeform pattern, I'll show you pictures of that, what that looks like here. Um, the shelf effect and the bottom weighting is what's important about these. What you see is the tip of the iceberg. Okay, these are deeper tumors than a dermatofibroma. Like I said, the, under the microscope, that's the differential. The pathologists always have trouble. What's a DF, what's a DFSP? Okay, that's the thing. They have a shelf, which means that you see the tip of the iceberg and the tumor expands way beyond deep into the dermis. The edges of the, termis, the, of the tumor intersect with normal skin. It gets very hard to tell when this tumor starts and stops. Okay, so it's a tumor of fibroblast, just like the, D, the DF is. The cells make collagen, which is why it's hard to tell where this tumor starts and stops because it's intersecting into normal collagen. They stain with immature markers. CD34 is an immature um, uh, endothelial cell marker and also an immature um, fibroblast, and that's why the staining is important. And DFs stain with factor 13A, and they're CD34 negative. So this profile is very important for pathologists in trying to differentiate these tumors. It can be hard to tell. This is like a keloidal nodule. It's obviously on the chest area, sternal area. It's a terrible picture, but it shows the tumor. And it's a DF gone wild. It's not just a dermatofibroma. It's got all these different nodules within it. This again, a DFSP, pretty large tumor, and then you can see this keloidal sort of nodule. Sometimes there are a lot less, you know, these are cases I showed just to show, you know, how bad they can be. Sometimes they don't look a whole lot, so it's something to be aware of. And here again, you see, I didn't show normal skin anymore because I've showed it a couple times, but the tumor goes all the way down into the subcutaneous fat, and you can see that these cells here don't look like they're supposed to. They're not loose and wavy here, they're more densely packed. And all the way into the dermal layer, and you can see this cartwheeling pattern. These nuclei almost look like they're little stars. Little storiform means cartwheeling, like they're coming from a central hub and they're like a cartwheel. So how do you treat these? Again, this is one you don't play with, okay? DFSP can be really tough, and if it does, looks like not much, you think, oh, maybe I can excise that. Don't, because it's gonna recur, and it better not be on your hands when it does, that kind of thing, better to have it in the hands of a surgeon. So they can go down to the fascia, uh, and they need to be widely excised. Gleevec, or imitinumab, which is a, um, a drug that's being used for a lot of different things, including uh, leukemias, has been used for DFSPs that are recurrent because DFSP has a mutation in platelet-derived growth factor, and imitinumab inhibits that. So it's a uh, chemotherapy agent that can be used for this, which you think, well, it's locally invasive, it doesn't metastasize. Why do we need a chemotherapy agent? Because these recur and recur and recur and recur. That's why. Okay. Epithelioid sarcoma is one of the things that scares people who know what it is, okay? If you've seen epithelioid sarcoma, these are very rare, but they're very highly malignant soft tissue tumors. They're most common on the hands in young men, okay, fingers and palms, and they look like GA. 
Okay, so it's kind of scary. They don't look like much, right? They're, they look like they, people present with these slow-growing slow dermal nodules or plaques, but they metastasize, okay? And they also recur after you excise them. If you look at the prognosis on these, 40% five-year survival, that's pretty dismal. Okay, women more so probably because women come to the doctor. They get, a, they get diagnosed first. So anything greater than five centimeters is an adverse prognostic sign in these. And that looks at Dipitrin's contracture you can think of. You could think of, you know, a, um, some sort of a fibroma. This, my God, that's really tough to tell that that's not GA, isn't it? You got that little rolled edge right there. So again, index of suspicion on things like this, things that aren't behaving the way you expect them to. Uh, GA, if you inject it, it should shrink at least a little bit. If you, um, if you don't know and you're thinking that that's a reason to biopsy GA, it's going to be sitting there for a while, so maybe it makes sense to make sure what it is. Anyway, um, here you see these irregular nodules of these epithelioid cells. They often have uh, plump cytoplasm and pleomorphic nuclei. Epithelioid means they look like epithelial cells. Epithelial cells are big, they're cuboidal, they have a lot of cytoplasm. They're the contrast to the fibrous tumor that I just showed you that has cigar-shaped cells without a lot of cytoplasm. Okay, so you see tumors embedded in the collagenous stroma. There's usually some hemorrhage. Pseudogranulomatous necrosis means that, again, it outgrows its own blood supply, and you see a little lobule of necrotic tissue surrounded by the tumor cells. That's what I'm saying here. So it looks granulomatous and low power. No one knows exactly where they came from, but, but many people believe that these are, are um, synovial cancers, that they come from the joint cells. They're a uh, pluripotent primitive mesenchymal cell, and they, like I said, they stain for these immature markers like CD34, but they stain for a bunch of other things as well. And again, normal skin. And then in the dermis here, this is not normal. This is these, you see, if you look, the tumor starts right around here. And you have these densely packed cells that are different colors. There's dark here, there's light here, and then in the center you have necrosis. This is what GA looks like, a lot what GA looks like. GA has these granulomatous inflammations surrounding an area of necrotic tissue. But when you look on higher power here, look at that mitotic, that's a bizarre looking mitosis, all these very cell, lots of cytoplasm in these cells, and yet they're bizarrely packed together, there's no order to them at all. And it's storing its stains with cytokeratin, which is something that you wouldn't expect um, epithelial cells or fibrous tumors to stain with. So you treat them with wide load, local excision and you cross your fingers. Uh, people have required amputations of fingers and digits when they're on the fingers and digits because it's so, um, it's so likely to metastasize and so difficult to remove because of the risk of recurrence that it is an indication for an amputation when it's on a digit. AFX. AFX, these are common, okay? Of all the things I'm talking about, some rare ones, some not so rare ones, these are not so rare. Uh, we've probably seen three AFX, AFXs this year in our office. Uh, it's a very low-grade malignancy, okay? It's related to uh, something else called a, a fibrous histocytoma. I guess that's not really relevant. What it is is it's a more favorable prognosis. It's usually on sun-exposed skin. I've seen almost everyone I've seen has been on the scalp in older people. Um, it's an eroded nodule, and every one I've ever seen has been eroded. Uh, under the microscope, you see a, what's called a Grenz zone. You see a normal band of skin. I'll show this in a second. And the tumor is underneath this normal band of skin. Bizarre spindle cells intermingled with atypical histiocytes, but they have vacuolated foamy cytoplasm. That's what xanthoma implies, that there's fat. They have this foamy cytoplasm that makes them look like there's uh, fat infiltrate in them. They have higher recurrence rates in the literature, but overall the prognosis is very good, and actually we treat these with Mohs in our office. Here's an AFX. An eroded nodule, this is on the ear, this is actually not from my office, and this one is. An eroded nodule in an elderly scalp, okay? So you see something like that. 
Uh, clinically, we actually made the diagnosis of AFX before we sent this to for pathology. So these are not uncommon. They look bad under the microscope. You get the report back. This is going to do okay. People get Mohs and they'll do okay. And here's the histopathology. You see normal epidermis, a Gren zone, which is uninvolved dermis, and then the involved dermis, this nodule that goes all the way down. And you can see the lighter cells. When you look in higher power, they have foamy cytoplasm, this kind of granulated foamy cytoplasm, which shows that it's a xanthomatous. So that's an AFX. Wide local excision or Mohs, because Mohs is appropriate. Nodular fasciitis, uh, this again, uh, one of those path reports that comes to you uh, periodically. This is not a cancer, but it looks like a cancer, okay? It's a rapidly growing, usually painful nodule, often on the arms, upper extremities of young guys, okay? And it's almost always an issue by a trauma. I've seen three cases of nodular fasciitis. Two of them have been in racquetball players that were whacked, one with a racket and one with a ball, which is interesting. So I think it's maybe a racquetball-related tumor. It is... Uh, a well-scribbled, circumscribed nodule, but it's really deep, subcutaneous. Sometimes it goes all the way down to the fascia, or even intramuscular, and it looks malignant, okay? It looks really cancerous under the microscope, but it's not. Pictures of this, it shows these bizarre myxoid. This white look here is all mucin. You have mucin that completely whites out this back area here, and then you get these really bizarre-looking cells that kind of have this feathered appearance. They discussed it, it's a classic feature, the feathered appearance. So it looks like cancer, but it really isn't. And the clinical history is what tells you that it's not cancer, because the person's come in, they've got a history of injury, it's usually a young guy, and it's really rapidly growing. So it can scare the heck out of you, but it's okay. So when you see nodular fasciitis come back, and that's one of the times you can take a sigh of relief, it's not something worse. And you can just narrowly excise them, and they go away. Okay, Merkel cells. A lot of talk about Merkel cells recently. Uh, Merkel cells uh, are becoming much more common than they used to be. This used to be one of the more rare things. I, in the first 10 years of my practice, I think I saw two. In the last 10 years of these, I've seen uh, too many to count. So uh, it's a tumor of elderly people. It's mostly on sun-exposed skin. It's a very aggressive tumor, okay? 50% of them occur on the head and neck, 40% on the extremities, and it's mostly in older people, uh, people over 70. Clinically, it's the scariest thing, because there's nothing clinical about it. It does not have any characteristic features. I've seen them look like dermatofibromas. I've seen them look like plum nodules. You think that maybe it's a lymphoma. Uh, it is usually firm. It's usually painless, usually less than two centimeters in size. It can be purple. It, can, it does not often ulcerate, which is, I guess, one of the reasons it looks so bland and so benign. With an excision, there's very high recurrence rates. Metastasis is likely. 55% of these regionally metastasize. 35% go distally, and there's a high mortality, 60% five-year survival, which means 40% aren't making it in five years. And overall, if you look at the mortality for melanoma, it's one in six. I mean, the statistic in, in 10 years, for, uh, Merkel cells got half that. So the mortality is, um, is, is very high. Actually, double that, not half that, double that, I meant to say. Okay. So what do we know about Merkel cells? Well, they are probably derived from the epidermal Merkel cell, which is in the basal layer of normal skin, and it's a mechanoreceptor. So mechanoreceptor means that it's a cell that has neurologic origin and is um, supposedly part of the, uh, the feeling uh, sensation of touch in the skin. There are more common Merkel cells on the hands than anywhere else, and yet most Merkel cell cancers don't occur on the hands. So no one knows exactly what that's all about. Okay. They may be photo-induced because most of them are in elderly patients and most of them in sun-damaged skin. And it's now been shown that 80% of Merkel cells have this DNA for polyomavirus, 
Okay? Polyomavirus was a virus that wasn't discussed when I was in residency. It's one of these things that all of a sudden shows up. It's possible, and I think it's really likely, that we're going to be finding that many of these cancers that we have are virally induced, but they were for viruses we didn't know to look for before. Uh, we go to Kaposi's, I'm going to show soon, too, that's got definitely viral genome in it, um, and maybe one of the reasons it shows up more in immunocompromised patients. So we don't know what the r exact role of polyomavirus is, but 80% of nerve cells have it, and most normal tissue does not. So there probably is some uh, true causative uh, role of polyoma in Merkel cell. Merkel cells, we talk about sun exposure. There's 100 times increase in the incidence of Merkel cell in people who've had PUVA. PUVA was the old sorolin ultraviolet light treatments that we used to use for psoriasis and for mycosis fungoides and other things that I would bet you that nobody in this room has any exposure to anymore because we started to realize we were treating psoriasis and causing melanomas in Merkel cells. So it's fallen out of favor for that very good reason. It was great treatment, worked great, but maybe too well. Um, the incidence of Merkel cell has tripled since 1986. So, and I've definitely seen that in my practice. Okay, so what do you see under the microscope? Again, it's a dermal mass, like most of these things are, and it, these are small blue cells. They look very much like lymphoma cells, okay? You see nodules and diffuse sheets of these basophilic, which means blue, tumor cells. They're very small. A little bit of cytoplasm, lots and lots of nuclei. They're hyperchromatic nuclei and a high magnetic activity. They stain with both epithelial markers and with neurologic markers, which is why, you know, that's why they're still tied to the Merkel cell, even though they're not occurring in places where Merkel cells exist. And this low molecular weight set of keratin is a stain that stains them, and that's a marker to confirm that they are Merkel cells and not small cell cancers of the lung that look very, very similar, and they can metastasize to the skin. So when you get a cytokeratin stain, it's very important on a blues tumor to get a cytokeratin stain to prove that it's not small cells in the lung that's metastasized. This perinuclear dot pattern is how it stains with cytokeratin, but that's probably not relevant. These are, this is Merkel cell. This is an unusual thing because it's very unusual to see multiple nodules in a primary cutaneous tumor. When you see multiple nodules, you're thinking usually metastasis, but this is a Merkel cell. Got another picture, Merkel cell. Again, a plum nodule. Doesn't look like a whole lot. You can think lymphoma. Certainly B cell lymphoma would be in the differential of this. And this scary thing is a Merkel cell because it's, it's pigmented. Doesn't look like anything, you know, so that, but it turned out to be a Merkel cell. Again, this doesn't take as much normal skin to tell you that there's something wrong here. You get the whole dermis is completely taken over by these blue cells, and they're really blue cells, and they're really densely packed, and there's mitosis after mitosis after mitosis. Trabecular is, um, they describe trabecula. Trabecula are like um, in bone. You have trabecula. They're, they're sort of the honeycomb pattern of bone. And this is supposed to, to somebody, this looked like there was honeycomb pattern like in the bone, like in the bone marrow of long bone. So how do you treat Merkel cell? Uh, you excise the primary tumor. Sentinel node mapping, just like in melanoma, should be done. And it should be routine in Merkel cell, unlike in, in, in melanoma where they don't necessarily do it. It's been shown to be effective here to, in terms of prognosis. It's not really effective in terms of uh, treatment. It's in effective in terms of telling you how you're going to respond. So um, sentinel nodes are positive 30% of, of all the Merkel cells that they've done them on, and only 5% of melanomas, which is why they're recommended routinely in Merkel cell. If the sentinel node is positive, you do CT scans to stage, because if the sentinel node is positive, it's likely in other tissues already. Mohs has been used, but Mohs makes no sense for a tumor like this because this tumor doesn't behave locally. Mohs is designed 
for local cancers to have narrow margins and make sure you've gotten it out and save as much normal tissue. And a cancer like this that's going to metastasize or has a high risk of metastasis, it's irrelevant to have narrow margins. You want wide margins. You want to make sure you've gotten everything out. So if people talk about mosing this, I don't think that makes any sense at all. What you do for these, you excise them widely, and then you radiate the base of the tumor. That's the standard of care right now for Merkel cells. So these people need to be sent to a surgeon, or you want to do the excision, you do a wide excision, like it's a nodular melanoma. You take margins like it's a nodular melanoma, and then you irradiate the tumor basin after it's done. Even if the sentinel node is positive, that's the treatment for the local primary, I mean, for the primary tumor. Okay, adjuvant chemotherapy has shown not to improve survival, so it's not done anymore. Okay, angiosarcomas. Let's just go back to Merkel cell one just to summarize Merkel cell. Think of them like nodular melanomas. Somebody comes to the Merkel cell, how do I behave with Merkel? Kind of like nodular melanoma. You take it very seriously. Wide excision with wide margins, radiation to the tumor basin, and sentinel lymph node work. If the sentinel lymph node is positive, basically it's prognostic. It's not diagnostic, not going to help. You do a CT scan, you see if it's in other tissues. Truthfully, adjuvant chemotherapy, you got to get it out for the patient, may not help. So it, that information may not be valuable exactly, but it's something that you, you, the books say we're supposed to do, and I think it's worthwhile to give the patient information. Okay. Angiosarcs, these are very scary tumors too. Uh, highly malignant tumors that occur in three different settings, on the face and the scalp in elderly patients, in the setting of after mastectomy, lymphedema, and post-radiation, and traumatized skin that's been damaged by radiation. So the primary angiosarcomas are almost all in very, very elderly people, very, very badly sun damaged typically. It's most common on the scalp and on the face. It looks like a bruise, but a bruise that keeps on extending, okay? It develops late hemorrhagic nodules and plaques. It extends locally, but very aggressively. It does have a state, so it can stay in the, uh, in the skin for a long time before it metastasizes, but when it metastasizes, uh, it's nasty. And the thing about it is that, you know, it's of blood vessel. Angiosarcoma is the sarcoma of blood vessels. So it has access to, this, to the bloodstream very, very quickly. The Stewart-Treevey syndrome is worth noting. This is one of the things I'm putting in here. If you have people in your practice who've had mastectomies and have the lymphedema sleeves, occasionally ask them to take the sleeve off and look under the sleeve. Okay, angiosarcomas develop particularly in areas of longstanding lymphedema. And I've seen them hiding underneath an angioedema sleeve before, okay? They are not felt to be caused by the radiotherapy. It's actually the years of lymphedema that seems to promote these tumors. For whatever reason, the lymph stasis, the lymph not moving anywhere, seems to promote some change in the endothelial cells that makes these angiosarcomas develop. The other setting you see it is in the non-congenital lymphedema of filarial disease, which, you know, unless we're practicing in tropical environments, we don't see very often. But uh, the setting we see is all the time is women coming in with uh, long-standing, they've got the lymphedema sleeve on, they've had mastectomy, they've had their lymph nodes removed. And once in a while, you know, if you're doing a full skin exam, make them take the sleeve off. Okay. So we can also have angiosarcomas attributed to direct radiation with severe trauma to the skin. So if you start to see a bruise that doesn't go away in a field of radiation dermatitis, another indication, as much as you hate to biopsy that skin because it heals so badly, to take a biopsy. Okay. So, and that's the thing about these, they usually extend beyond the clinically apparent tumor. So these are the tip of the iceberg when we see them. There's different differentiates in different parts of the same biopsy. Some areas show 
These are uh, irregular, anastomosing means joining, so irregularly joining vas vascular channels with these atypical endothelial cells, and because they're blood vessels, they dissect through all the other tissue. So they are really tough to tell where this starts and where this stops. Okay, there's some, uh, like any cancer, some areas show real bad pleomorphic cells, lots of mitotic figures. Again, the CD34 stain is positive, an immature stem cell stain, but it also stains normal endothelial cells, and CD31, which is an endothelial stain, and weevil pelod bodies are just, to go back to, you know, the basic science stuff that's on the EM, that's the uh, marker for endothelial cells. I got these from study sets because I, for, I don't have enough cases to have a good photographs from my own practice, but in a massively extensive bruise, basically, in the head and neck area of, a, of an elderly guy. And this doesn't look quite as vascular, okay, but these are uh, angiosarcomas. And this is uh, under the microscope, some histopath we had in our library here. And this is the blood vessel itself. These are endothelial cells projecting into the wall of blood vessel. This is all kind of crapped up blood here. And you can see that these are bizarre cells, They're almost all nuclei. There's really very little cytoplasm. They're all hyperchromatic nuclei. Weeble pilot bodies it goes back to medical school and gives me nightmares. It's okay. So. What do you do with angiosarcomas? As much as radiation may induce them, you radiate them because you really physically can't excise them. Imagine cutting through blood vessels that are tumorous blood vessels that are intersecting the things that bleeds and it bleeds and it bleeds and it bleeds. And it's got such a terrible prognosis anyway, you're better off not getting into it. So once you've done the biopsy, you've got this diagnosis, you refer them for radiation therapy and to an oncologist probably. Capacies. Well, Capacies was, when I was in residency, Capacies was everywhere because Capacies was the tumor that we saw AIDS associated. You know, we don't see AIDS like we used to anymore. We have people that are HIV, but they're all on the drug cocktail, so we just don't see the immunosuppression even in HIV that we used to. Um, but we still see the Mediterranean type a lot in our office, and this is not that uncommon to cancer. So until the 1980s, it was felt to be pretty unusual, uh, and then when the AIDS epidemic hit and everybody's coming immunocompromised, this herpes hominis virus, herpes vi human virus 8, Somehow, when people are immunosuppressed, suddenly this becomes active. And it's probably, a lot of us have it, and it's not active when our immune systems are intact. But when people are in chemotherapy or if they have AIDS, it becomes active and induces this pattern. The classic type, the non-immunosuppressed type, um, is much more common in men. It's much more common on, uh, they say Mediterraneans, but also Eastern Europeans. It's usually in older guys. It's usually on the legs. And it's a slow-growing type of thing. Okay, patients survive a long time. Usually this doesn't kill them, even though it does metastasize. On, on post-mortems for other issues, they find capacities in somebody's lung or they find capacities in somebody's liver from their skin, but that's not what did them in. There's an African type that's much more aggressive, which I'm not gonna speak that much more about, that's usually in children, it's much more, much more aggressive. Okay, so what we have here, the AIDS-related type, we still see it sometimes. I mean, it's not as common as it used to be, it was 200,000 times more common in homosexual AIDS patients than the general population, which is pretty stunning. Okay, it wasn't as common, for whatever reason, in the hemophiliacs and the heterosexuals who had AIDS. So it probably had something to do with the herpes infection that was causing it. Uh, it was more common on the trunk, and, and sometimes we saw mucosal involvement. Okay, and there was visceral involvement at the autopsy, like I said, but it wasn't symptomatic. They died of other things. You see it sometimes. In organ, or I haven't seen it in organ transplants, but it's inscribed in organ transplant patients, and when they lower their immunosuppressive drugs, it gets better. So it's really something to do with the virus going wild. So the early lesions can be pretty subtle. The patch stages have a very um, patchy perivascular infiltrate of lymphocytes, 
And what's classic here is the jagged vascular channels and extravasated blood cells are bleeding outside of the channels. So as it goes further along, it gets thicker. You see plaques and nodular stages. There are more, va more visible vascular slits that seem to be intersecting into the collagen and these large plump endothelial cells and blood outside of the blood vessel. So is it reactive? Is it neoplastic? Is it really an infection? Or is it really a cancer? I think it's an argument as to that because you know, it is so clearly tied to this HHH, HHA, excuse me, um, that there's definitely an infectious element to it, but it may be just another sign of viruses inducing malignancies like we see in other situations, like you know, H, uh, HPV virus inducing cervical cancer. So viruses inducing carcinoma is actually a common theme in medicine. This is classic Kaposi's. So this is a guy I see periodically in my office here. He's had these for years. And you see these, um, they look bruised. They've got this purple sort of look. They're in a classic location on the arch of the foot. I think I got another slide too. Yeah, on the arch of the foot, it's a classic location for this. This is something you should burn in. This is the classic picture for it. This is hard to miss, and this is a good diagnosis to make. And you don't need a biopsy to make the clinical diagnosis on this. Of course, you're gonna do one, but I, you walk in the door, it's, oh, the guy's got Kaposi's. And under the microscope, you see, Again, where's my picture? Normal epidermis, and in the dermis, all this blood, that's not supposed to be there. This is all blood that's outside of the blood vessels. There's those vascular slits that are tough to see from far away here, and the blood's outside the blood vessels. So what do you do here? Well, for these guys, for the Mediterranean type, I do radiation therapy, and it works great. And we've been able to maintain people that get a new nodule, radiation therapy. For localized nodules, a couple times I've just excised them, and they've done really well. You do a little wide excision around them, and then you sew them together, and they're fine. Interlesional uh, chemotherapy we used to use in the old days with the AIDS patients we used to do, interlesional vinblastin, which was never a whole lot of fun. It hurt a lot, and you try to inject somebody's mouth with vinblastin and hope they don't bite you pretty good, which is a, was always an issue. All right, I'm nearing the end here. Everybody's glazing over. So metastatic carcinoma. 5% uh, of all patients with internal malignancies have cutaneous mets, which means 95 don't. Right? So it's not a super common situation. 10% uh, of patients with metastatic disease have skin metastases, okay? So 90% don't, again, not common. They usually get to the skin via the lymphatics or the bloodstream or from extension, local extension from underlying tissue, like in the breast, which I'll show. No. Okay, I think I, I gotta go back. Yeah, so metastatic breast cancer. Um, 69% of all cutaneous metastases in women are from the breast, so it's the most common metastatic to the skin, and there's patterns that are why it's important here. This can look different, it can look really bizarre, and it doesn't necessarily look like a metastatic nodule. There's a type called inflammatory carcinoma, okay, where you have something that looks like somebody's got recurrent cellulitis on the breast, with a history usually of breast cancer, but not always. So a, something that looks like erysipelas, and remember, erysipelas is like cellulitis, but it's got a shelf, it's really, firm, it's rock hard, it's warm, it's red, usually comes on pretty quickly, okay? Um, if it's on the breast and it's not responding to antibiotics, biopsy that, okay? Because it's important, because inflammatory carcinoma is not that uncommon, it does happen. Carcinoma in Kiras is a different look. It looks like morphia, okay? And it starts to develop a, for whatever reason, a cobblestoning look to the surface of the skin as the tumor infiltrates into the collagen bundles of the dermis. And you start to see a pota orange, it looks like orange peel. The skin has that kind of look where the, um, the follicular osteum become very large and patchless and a little bit uh, demitous, and you have this pota orange look to it. 
course, there's the nodular, and there's actually this really rare tenantic tatic type, which looks like a lymphangioma, or a lymphangioma circumscriptum is the old frog spawn tumor. It looks like a bunch of uh, vesicles. It almost looks vesicular, but it's firm. So what is the histopathology? Basically, just skin infiltration of the primary tumor. The scurrus carcinoma, which is the, the one I was talking about, the carcinoma in Karas, uh, shows these atypical cells intersecting into thickened collagen, so that's why it looks so bound down and firm and morphia-like. The inflammatory type shows marked capillary congestion. The blood vessels are full of cancer. And the reason it looks like erysipelas is because the blood vessels are full of cancer. They're plugged up. Fluid's got nowhere to go. So it gets inflamed, very much like what happens in erysipelas. It gets inflamed, boggy, red, and looks inflammatory. So this is scurrus carcinoma, showing the retraction of that breast and that firm morphia-like uh, uh, surface of the skin. It's hard to see texture, but you can certainly get a feeling for that retraction there and the firmness of that breast. A Sister Mary Joseph's nodule. This is an interesting thing. A Sister Mary Joseph's nodule is not a specific entity. Sister Mary Joseph was the scrub nurse for the Mayo Brothers, okay? And she was a smart lady, and she noticed that many times people would come in with a nodule at the umbilicus. And when they had a nodule at the umbilicus and the Mayo Brothers opened them up, they almost always had internal cancer, and quite frequently it was stomach cancer. So she was the one, which is interesting because most of the time doctors get credit for this kind of stuff, but she was the one who described this, which is the association of a nodule at the umbilicus and underlying GI cancers, often, her description was often stomach cancer, gastric carcinoma. And these are Sister Mary Joseph's nodule. So that's an umbilicus that's completely taken over a tumor. This is actually one that I saw. It was actually, this was metastatic uh, endometriosis, which has uh, been described. And this right here, too, I believe that this was a colon cancer. And this is another one that uh, we saw that was a uh, gastric, uh, gastric, this is a colleague of mine saw this, gastric cancer. So a nodule like that in the belly button, uh, think about it. Okay, so they wanted me to put some pearls in, so I want to summarize a couple things here. Beware of the microcystic adnexal carcinoma. That comes back on a PATH report. Take them seriously. If you see something that looks like a uh, scurrus uh, basal cell, something that looks like a sclerotic basal cell on the face, particularly on the maxilla, don't skimp on your biopsy. Remember I showed you those tumors. They had different components to them, and they went pretty deep. If you get a superficial biopsy of that, you might not get enough of the tumor to actually make the diagnosis. And this is not going to behave like a sclerotic basal cell, which you can mow and it's going to do okay. This is going to be nasty. This is going to be something you have to chase around. This is going to be much, much more difficult. So if you see something that looks like a sclerotic skin cancer, particularly the maxilla or the nasolabial folds, don't skimp on your biopsy. Get some tissue. Okay? That's the biggest problem as a pathologist, as somebody who reads my own slides, is when somebody doesn't give us enough tissue. They cut too superficially. We don't get enough tissue to actually make a firm diagnosis. So don't... Don't be too afraid. A scar is a scar. You're trading it for a cancer, right? They're going to have a scar anyway, right? So don't be so afraid of getting tissue because tissue is important to tell them what's going on. Okay. Um, take those seriously. Sebaceous carcinomas outside of the eyelids, they behave like basal cells, but the eyelid type is aggressive. So if you see one on the eyelid, comes back sebaceous or close to the eyelid, if you biopsy around there and it comes back as sebaceous carcinoma, uh, that's a reason to be a little bit more aggressive and that's a reason to refer to an oncologist rather than just a surgeon. Okay, because they do have a high risk of metastasis. Merca cells, the associated with polyomavirus, I think is more interesting, but just think of them like they behave like nodular melanomas and we have to treat them uh, more aggressively and be, be, uh, put them in a different category. The DFSP 
is so locally invasive that they actually do use chemotherapy for them, even though they're not a metastatic tumor. And these, again, locally invasive, you're always seeing the tip of the iceberg. Be careful to make sure that this whole thing is removed. Don't skimp on your excisions. And I would say to most of you guys, it's beyond the scope of what a dermatologist is going to do in their office. Okay, a DFSP is probably beyond the scope of what we should schedule to excise in our offices. Okay, epithelial sarcomas on the hands of young men. If it looks like GA and isn't responding to steroid, it's not responding to intralesional, get a biopsy. GA is the thing I biopsy because, you know, 50%, statistically, 50% of GA will regress if you just biopsy. Granulomanularity will regress just on biopsy. No one knows exactly why, but probably it stimulates the collagen to remodel. So it's a good idea if it looks like GA, it's not a bad idea to biopsy it, because sometimes it just goes away. If it's not going to go away, if it's going to be there for a couple of years. Anything that's going to be there for a couple of years, you, probably not a bad idea to have some histopathology to tell you that what you're treating, because you don't want to miss something like this and have it go on for a couple of years and then find out after the fact that, you know, you could have saved somebody's life. And the Stewart-Treeby syndrome, okay, angiosarcoma and the setting of long-standing lymphedema, take the sleeve off. Okay, somebody come, they don't like taking the sleeves off. It's hard to get it back on. The elderly patients, it's hard. Take the sleeve off. Look and see underneath it that there's nothing going on. All right, so the last few. These are just pearls of general practice, okay? I tell my residents this all the time. Don't be so afraid of side effect that you forget about effect. It's got nothing to do with tumors. It's got to do with practice management, okay? We're so afraid sometimes of what could happen, okay? Somebody getting collagen vasculitis from minocycline that we don't use minocycline. Well, there's a reason minocycline's out there. Most people don't have side effects, okay? Treat your patients. People come to doctors wanting to get better. I think we in dermatology sometimes are so afraid of what could happen that we forget what's supposed to happen. So I think it's a good idea to make sure that you actually are treating people, okay? And if you're scared of your own shadow, you're not doing what's best for the patient. Okay? That doesn't mean you have to put everybody on methotrexate and not check blood tests. You gotta be cautious, okay? But you just gotta, you know your drugs, Know what you're comfortable with and get comfortable with some things that are going to make people better. Okay. The patient is the one with the disease. This is an important aspect for physician assistants, I think, especially because they're caught sometimes between patients and their attending physicians. Patients try to transfer their disease to you. They try to make it your fault and your responsibility. Psoriatics with terrible psoriasis, people that have mycosis mongoides. If you're not getting them better, then it's your fault. But you didn't give them the disease, and some diseases are tough to treat. Okay, if you're doing everything that's right and everything that's medically important and they're not getting better, it's because they got bad disease, not because you're not doing everything you can. Okay, so don't let people back into that corner that somehow you're not doing what's right as long as you're confident that you're doing what's right. It's a tough thing with practice management sometimes, but there's a give and take between people and people put themselves into sick roles and they want to be sick and they want somebody else to take responsibility for it. But, you know, you didn't give it to them. Okay, just a way of just remembering things here. Okay, and then the last thing is an essential pearl for people that do surgery especially. If you tell somebody it could scar before you do the procedure and it scars, it was an explanation. If you don't say a damn thing and they have a complication, then it is your fault because that's an explanation, you know, it's, it's an excuse after the fact, okay? So you talk about risks. Don't be afraid of risks. They're there. Do what you have to do, okay? But make sure you document that you talked about it ahead of time. I think that's all I got. Thank you.